We are in part three of a short series on the book of Esther, a beautiful little book, one of only two books in the Bible named for uh, female characters, Ruth and Esther. And Esther, in particular, is the story of a Jewish girl originally named in the Hebrew tongue Hadassah. And she became an orphan somehow and sometime during the tumultuous years after King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and carried all of its citizens away to Babylon as captives. Time passes and Babylon kind of fades out of power and Persia now becomes the dominant world empire. And Esther has been raised without parents in that foreign land. She's been raised by her cousin Mordecai who is really more of an uncle to her. And Esther has kept her Jewish identity secret all that time. Eventually, we've already talked about this, and it's a very familiar story. She's chosen by King Ahasuerus out of hundreds of young women to replace a rebellious queen named Vashti. And that's how it comes about that this orphan girl moves into the palace in Shushan, literally becoming the queen of the Persian Empire. The book of Esther is the story of one courageous young woman who risks her life, literally, to save her people from certain annihilation. And the events of this book give rise to a feast called Purim, which the Jews have celebrated annually ever since that time. The word pur means lots, dice, the casting of lots. And it specifically refers to the casting of lots by a wicked man named Haman when he was trying to determine a day of the year when the Jews could be slaughtered. You see, as the king's prime minister, next in power to the king, all the people were supposed to bow to Haman. And everybody did, except a guy named Mordecai. And because Mordecai wouldn't join everybody else in bowing to Haman, Haman hated him. And so through deceitful manipulation, Haman had a, a decree of destruction issued in the king's name, and it could not be altered because that was the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once a law is made, once a decree is issued, it cannot be changed. And so that year unfolds with some very terrible news. We think we've had it bad in this year of 2020 because we faced down a pandemic and the year didn't begin and the year didn't continue the way we thought it should. But imagine if there was a decree of destruction on everyone in your race, on everyone that shared your ethnicity. That's what it was. And the Jews would be robbed and the Jews would be slain in just a few months. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it except Esther. And that's why Mordecai gave her this challenge. For if thou altogether holdeth thy peace at this time, if you don't say anything, Esther, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Mordecai had enough faith to say, God is going to deliver us somehow. But if you don't speak up, Esther, you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And here's my point, Esther. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Who knows if it was God behind the king that day when he chose you out of all the maidens in Persia. Who knows if it was God that orchestrated that, that you would be chosen and sit in the palace. Who knows but what that's the hand of God setting you up. So Esther, I think you're come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Can I tell you in this tumultuous era of time, when everything seems to be shaking and quaking and there's all kinds of turmoil and trouble, panic and anxiety, I think the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not ill-positioned. I think we're perfectly positioned to help people, to be a voice to people, to be a light to people, and we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, Haman was fixated on destroying Mordecai. The very same way the devil is fixated on destroying every one of you. The devil doesn't like that you're serving Jesus. The devil doesn't like that you're in church. The devil doesn't like it when you lift up your hands and praise God. You know why? Because everybody else in this world is marching to his drum and bowing to his agenda. And when the saints of God refuse to bow to the currents of culture, the devil's not very happy about it. And he's fixated on you. Haman was the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, according to the story. Most likely he's a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were one of the most enduring enemies of God's people throughout the whole Old Testament. They were descended from Esau. And their first encounter with Israel was an unprovoked attack in the Sinai Desert right after Israel, a fledgling people, has just got set free from Egypt in what we call the Exodus. And they're just on their way. They haven't even really become a nation yet. And Amalek attacks them, unprovoked. And Amalek continued to attack the Hebrews any time they saw an opportunity. And they were ruthless. They were cruel. And they were aggressive. They were bent on one thing, and that was the genocide of Israel. One rabbinical source says that their name, Amalek or Amalek, literally means people who lick blood. In a malevolent mockery of the Israelites, in a malevolent mockery of their covenant of circumcision, when they captured a Jewish man, a soldier in battle, they would sadistically mutilate his body. Now, cowardly King Saul had refused to destroy Amalek when he had the chance. And now an Agagite, an Amalekite, has risen one more time and that spirit is still trying to annihilate the Jews. Haman is referred to four times in the book of Esther as the enemy of the Jews. And that makes him one of the strongest pictures of Satan in the entire Bible. Hebrew letters have a numerical value, and it's interesting to me that the numerical value of Haman, or Haman, as the Jews would say it, the numerical value of Haman is 666, which the Bible tells us is the number of the Antichrist. 
and Haman, Haman, he is controlled by this spirit of the Antichrist, which wants to wear down and wear out the people of God through constant opposition. Daniel gives us a prophecy about an event that is still to come in our history, and that's called the tribulation. It is on its way. You feel kind of the, 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 the beginnings of it almost now, that there's going to come a time of great turmoil and anxiety and trouble on this earth. It's called the tribulation. But let me tell you something. Although Daniel's prophecy deals with the tribulation in the future, that spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world today. Here's what Daniel said. He shall speak, the Antichrist, that spirit, shall speak great words against the Most High. But he won't be just content to attack God. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And then he continues. Now I know that saints is referring to the Jews. But can I tell you the spirit of Antichrist does not make distinction. The Antichrist would like to wear you out. The devil would like to wear you down. John even said this at the end of the New Testament era. He said, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many Antichrists, and that's how we know it is the last time. I know the Antichrist is still to be revealed, and if you've got all kinds of theories as to his identity, I'll leave that to you and the prophecy scholars and a few of the prophecy theorists. I'll leave that all to you. But I know this on the authority of the Word of God, that whoever the Antichrist is, and whenever he will be revealed, and wherever he comes from, the spirit behind him is already loose in the world today and there are many antichrist spirits against the people of the living God and that is how we know we are in the last time. John also said this. He said every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come, watch, and even now already it is in the world. But you are of God, little children, and you have overcome them. Every spirit of antichrist, every attack of the evil one, every plan and scheme and plot of hell, you have overcome them. Why? Because you're so strong, good, and religious? No, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But I came to address you today and say, if you're feeling strangely exhausted, by a thousand little things. If you're feeling like your battles are raging on and on and on with no end in sight. If you're suddenly feeling overwhelmed by the pressures and the stresses of the world. And if you're feeling confused and maybe even a little anxious about the times we find ourselves in. And if you can feel a subtle but steady opposition to your walk with God. You listen to me. That is the enemy trying to wear you down and wear you out. It is the spirit of the age. It is the spirit of Antichrist trying to wear out the saints of the Most High God. 
So what do we do about that, Pastor? Well, just like Esther, you will not win a battle with your enemy based on your own strength. The only way you're going to win over the devil, the only way you're going to win over the world and your own flesh is you've got to have a relationship with the king. I said this last week, and I'll just run it by you again. If your enemy is the king's enemy, then your battle is the king's battle. You don't have to fight it all alone. You don't have to fight it by yourself. You don't have to do this on your own. Haman's name is a combination of Haman, which means noise or tumult, and Aman, which means agree or affirm. And Aman is the same root word from which we get amen. So be it. I agree. I affirm that. Haman is also similar to the Hebrew word harem, which means war or destroy. And this is how words work in most languages, but particularly in ancient Hebrew. Haman's name, Haman, it, it, it means all of these different shades of definition and meaning. You see, Haman made a noisy boast that he was going to do the Jews in. And he even signed an agreement, a decree, that the Jews would be destroyed by war. You see, his name, it prophesied what he was going to do. But here's what Haman was not counting on. He wasn't counting on a little girl named Esther getting involved. But when the lady who knew the king got involved, Haman's days were numbered. Fast forward probably about almost 3,000 years. The devil has made his noisy boast against the church. You hear echoes of his words in culture, mocking Christianity, discrediting Jesus, tearing the Bible limb from limb, and absolutely demeaning anyone who would dare to follow Jesus of Nazareth. The devil has made a noisy boast, and he has the agreement of the world system as well. But do not let the devil's word be the last word, because if the lady, the church, if she ever stands up because she knows the king, the devil's day are numbered. As for me, my joyful noise and my amen and my boast will be in the Lord. And as the young people sing, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I lift up a warfare tactic. This is how I take charge of my weapons. I worship my way through the opposition. I know the Antichrist spirit is seeking to wear out the people of the Most High God. But if you're exhausted, there is Holy Ghost energy for you today. If you are confused, there's Holy Ghost peace for you today. Just after Esther became queen, Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot by two of the king's own guards, his chamberlains. Mordecai reported it to Esther, and Esther reported it to King Ahasuerus, and the men were hanged, and the king was saved, and it was all written down in detail in the chronicles of the Persian Empire, and it was promptly forgotten all about.
And much later, after Haman had been promoted to prime minister, and after Haman had already launched his plot to destroy, to destroy Mordecai and all the Jewish people, and after Esther had bravely gone in before the king, risking her own life if he didn't raise that scepter to accept her, and even after Ahasuerus and Haman had been invited by Esther to a banquet, and after everything seems to be going Haman's way, he thinks he is the big man on campus. He alone has been invited to a banquet with the king and the queen. But even after all of that, and even after everything seems to be unfolding for Haman, and everything's going his way, and everything's coming up roses for this enemy of the Jewish people, he is still fixated on Mordecai. Esther 5 and 9, then went Haman forth that day, joyful, with a glad heart. He was excited to be invited to a banquet. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that Mordecai wouldn't stand up nor move for him. He wouldn't get up and then make obeisance to, to uh, Haman. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. This evil man is so fixated on Mordecai. He's got everybody else in the whole kingdom bowing to him. Everything else has turned out okay for him. All of his plots and plans seem to be coming together. But he's fixated on Mordecai. Can I tell you something about the devil? He doesn't care how many people he has in the world, how many professors and celebrities and politicians are spouting his nonsense. He doesn't care about that. He is fixated on the people of God. It bothers the devil that you're here this morning. It really messes him up that in the middle of your everyday ordinary life with your trouble and your trial and your pain and your tests that you can lift up a hand and worship God. That drives him crazy. He's fixated on you. He's fixated on the people of God. He doesn't care that he has millions in the world deceived by false religions and millions ensnared in addiction and perversion and immorality. He doesn't care. He's already got them. He is fixated on you. And so it didn't make his day when he saw Mordecai not cooperating with the masses. And that's when Haman went home pouting. And Haman's wife Zeresh and all of his friends advised him, hey Haman, let's build a gallows 50 cubits high. Now that's a cubit, so that's a tall gallows. And we'll ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on that tall gallows. And of course, Haman assumes that the king's going to agree. After all, up to this point in the story, he's let Haman do anything he wanted thus far. But something really odd happened in the palace that night. Very simple, but very consequential. That night... While Haman was building his tall gallows. And by the way, some scholars say that Haman, as the prime minister, he probably lived next door to the palace of the king. So Haman may have unwittingly caused his own problem because that night, while Haman is over here with his friends building a gallows, the king can't sleep. I don't know if it's because he heard construction, but he couldn't sleep. 
And so the king asked in the middle of the night for the chronicles of the Persian Empire to be read to him. Good bedtime reading. It'll put you right out. And it just so happened that Mordecai's good deed was the page that the reader turned to and that whole episode of Mordecai saving his life was brought back to the king's memory. And so the next day, when his prime minister Haman comes whistling into the palace with his little plot in hand, the king has a question for his prime minister. So Haman came in and the king said unto him, what do you think we should do for the man that the king delights to honor? Now you know what Haman thought. Haman thought in his heart now, to whom would the king delight to do honor? More than to me. Haman cannot imagine that the king would possibly be talking about anybody else but him. So he spreads it on thick. Oh, here's what we should do. King, I think we should bring your royal robes and your royal horse and your royal crown and we should dress that man up so he looks like you in royal robes and a royal crown and put him on your horse and parade him through the streets and get an important man. He's setting himself up. Get an important man and let him lead that horse and let him shout like a town crier. This is what we do for the man that the king delights to honor. <laughs> Imagine Haman's horror when the king said, do even so to Mordecai the Jew. And so here's Haman. There's funny stuff in the Bible. Here's Haman gritting his teeth. And he has to do what the king said. So here's Haman shouting about this guy named Mordecai. Not only does he not respect him, he is fixated on destroying him. He has launched, launched a plot and a decree to wipe this guy out. But before Mordecai dies, Haman has to walk through the whole city saying, this is how we treat the man that the king delights to honor. After he completed his distasteful task, Haman rushed home in shame and in mourning because all of a sudden, the tables were beginning to turn. And it was just then, the Bible actually says this, at that moment, the king's servants, as Haman is sulking and whining and mourning and hanging his head in shame, the servants arrived to bring him to a second banquet with the king and Esther. And it's during that meal that Esther points her finger at Haman. And she says in front of the king, the adversary and the enemy of my people and me is this wicked Haman. You know the story if you're a Bible reader. Haman ended up being hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai at the order of his own king. It looked like everything was going his way right up until the very last moment. I was reading this week and they say that one of our modern sayings may actually come and have its roots from the book of Esther. Give a man enough rope and he'll hang himself because the king had the final word, not Haman. Now on the feast of Purim today, 
Our dear Jewish friends, most of the time, they're pretty stoic and reserved. They've been through a lot in their history. But on Purim today, when the book of Esther is read, when they come to the name Mordecai in the story, they cheer. It's pandemonium in the little synagogue. But whenever Haman's name is pronounced, they make a terrible noise. His name meant noise, and forever after, the noise blots out his name. It's in keeping with their obligation to blot out the name of Haman forever. And so if you look in the Jewish encyclopedia or other resources, they actually give suggestions for the adults and children attending synagogue on Purim. Number one, write Haman's name on the bottom of your shoes and then stomp his name into the ground. Number two, Blow a shofar, a trumpet, to drown out his name. Number three, beat on a drum. Or if you don't have a drum, bring pots and pans and bang them together. For all of you handyman and women, this might appeal to you. This is a suggestion from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Bring a tin can filled with nails and shake it loudly every time they say the name Haman. They even have a custom of making a dummy of Haman so they can beat it, hang it, stomp on it, punch it, and then burn it. And you get a little embarrassed when we say, you need to shout the name of Jesus and shame the devil. You need to lift up Jesus high because the devil might be listening to you. Music, come on back. There are several annual feasts of the Jews, several of them. There's Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, Hanukkah, and Purim. And all of these feasts celebrate what happened for Israel. They celebrate the deliverance from Egypt. They celebrate the giving of the law. They celebrate the wandering in the wilderness and how God provided. They celebrate the cleansing of the temple. That's Hanukkah. They all celebrate what happened to Israel. But the Feast of Purim is the feast of almost happened. It's the feast that celebrates what almost happened. Can I tell you today as we gather here in this sanctuary on this beautiful Sunday in the month of July 2020, still in the midst of a worldwide pandemic that a lot of people are so terrified of, I'm glad to be gathered here today to celebrate what God has done and what has happened for us and how He has delivered us. But I'm equally glad and equally blessed to stand here today and say we got some things to celebrate that didn't happen to us or that almost happened to us it's in scripture it teases around the edges Proverbs 5 and 14 I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and assembly the psalmist said the, the writer of Proverbs Solomon he said I almost backslid right in the middle of church almost Psalm 119, they had almost consumed me upon the earth, 
But when the enemy was coming in, I, I, I refused to forsake your precepts. Could have happened. Would have happened. Maybe should have happened. But it only almost happened. Psalm 94. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. I almost came to church and just sat there like a proverbial bump on a log and endured the preaching, enjoyed the music, and just kind of waited out the time. I almost dwelt in silence. But then I got thinking. When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. I almost came to church and didn't do much. I almost came to church and didn't worship. I almost came to church and didn't lift up the name of the Lord because I was so concentrated and fixated on my issues and my problems and my pain and my hurt and my frustrations. But then I got thinking, you know what? There have been times in my life I almost slipped and fell. I almost slipped and backslid. I almost slipped and walked away never to return to God. But every time, His mercy reached in and lifted me up. So I'm just here to thank God for what almost happened but didn't happen. Oh, oh my. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to be Pentecostal. I apologize for being apostolic, but I really don't care because the Lord has been too good to me. There's a lot of stuff that has happened and I'm grateful, but there's a lot of stuff that almost happened and I'm equally grateful that that didn't happen. One more, one more. Stay standing, that's okay. Psalm 73. Verse 2 and 3, Asaph, Brother Milford Stairs used to call me Asaph because I was the choir director. Loved that old elder. Asaph was the choir director for David. And this is one of his psalms. He said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped because I got looking around at everybody in the world. And they seem to be doing better than me and have it easier than me. I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And Asa spends the next 13 verses whining and groaning and moaning and complaining. And then he says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until... I went back into the sanctuary of God and the minute the doors clicked behind my heels and I felt the presence of God and I looked at the people of God and I thought about my history and their history when I saw that then I understood those wicked people are going down those sinners have a destiny that I don't share but as for me I was almost gone but I didn't go. And that's why I'm here in the sanctuary today. I can't speak for you. I'm here to celebrate what happened because there have been many times when God has delivered me out of the hand of the enemy and he's pulled me out of problems I created for myself and he's forgiven me of sins that I committed against him. But I'm also here today 
to celebrate the feast of almost happened because there have been countless times I couldn't see what God was keeping me from. I fought with him. I argued with him. I used every bit of my logic and tried to push God back so I could go my own way. Almost. It should have been bad, but it ended up good. It should have been a defeat, but it turned into a victory. It would have been a mess, but God turned it into a miracle. I should have fallen. I could have backslidden. I would have yielded to temptation. In fact, it almost happened. But it didn't happen. Jesus kept me from it. And I'm here to celebrate what didn't happen. Think with me, think with me. I know some of you are standing, that's okay. We're almost done. Think with me. The car accident and that other vehicle hit in just the right spot or you would have been wiped out. The disease that could have taken your life and at the last minute, it's like the doctors were puzzled by the quick turnaround. We recorded our prayer time on Wednesday night and they aired it in Palm Bay, Florida. Pastor David Myers, the wonderful church, Eastwind Church there. They aired it on Thursday night because they've been praying every night this week against coronavirus because Florida has been hit so hard among other states. And I, they aired it Thursday night, what we recorded Wednesday night and Friday morning, I called Pastor David. <laughs> He said there was an old elder. He had basically every symptom of COVID-19. He was at home. He hadn't been to church yet. He said, he called me. He said, Pastor, I was watching that prayer meeting online. And as I was watching God's people pray, he said, every symptom of COVID-19 left my body and I've never looked back and I'm okay, Pastor, and I'm gonna be coming back to church. That day, that night, that week, that time of depression, that fierce battle of temptation, it probably should have taken you down. It probably would have taken you out. It certainly could have resulted in a vastly different end to your story. It almost happened. But is there anybody here that would join me today not only celebrating all the good things we know God has done, but is there anybody who could grasp it in your spirit today and just join me and say, you know what? I'm going to celebrate my own little feast of Purim today. I'm going to thank God for what didn't happen. I'm going to thank God for every time the devil didn't win. I'm going to thank God for every time that the car didn't roll over and every time that I came out of the hospital and every time that I resisted temptation. I'm going to thank God for what didn't happen. It could have killed me, but I'm here by the grace of God. Oh, I wish you'd use your voice. 
We say to the little children, use your outside voice and give Jesus a praise in this room. I thank God for what didn't take me down and what didn't wreck my life and what didn't mess me up. Last scripture, everybody stand with me please. Joseph said it to his brothers after Joseph had been dragged through hell on his way to the palace. But as for you, you thought evil against me. You devised a scheme to take me down and keep me down. You thought evil against me. But all the time you were plotting, my God was preparing. All the time you were scheming, my God was setting me up. You thought evil against me, but my God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I am not gonna ask you to come to the front and do a come to the front altar call, but I am gonna ask every person from the back row of the balcony to the back row of the sanctuary, from the left hand to the right and the right to the left, I'm gonna ask if you'd have your own personal altar service right now. Would you lift up every bit of praise you've got? I thank God for everything he's done for me. I thank God for how good he's been to me, but I thank God for stuff I do don't even have a clue about. I don't know how God delivered me, but I know he did. I don't know how God saved my life, but I know he did. I'm looking for some Pentecostal apostolic people who will lift up a loud praise, a shout. If the Jews can do it on Purim, if they can make a noise in the synagogue, my goodness, we can make a noise in an apostolic church. Jesus has been so good to me. Yes, yes. Ha, ha, ha. You made a 